0: We are concluding a series that we started a couple weeks ago that we've entitled Question Everything. And, and this was a series born out of our summer series that uh, we did on missional living. Like what would it look like for the people of God, the Christians here at Praxis, to lovingly, caringly engage uh, their non-believing friends with the gospel, to be able to live it out, to communicate it well. What would that look like uh, here at Praxis? And so out of that, we encouraged you to ask your non-believing friends what their Primary problems uh, with Christianity was that their objections were to Christianity, and so we got a long list of objections, and we took the top 12 objections to Christianity. We took numbers 4 through 12, and we've been answering those questions on the blog at PraxisChurch.com. Various uh, members of our leadership team have taken those questions, answered them there. Some of you have gotten on there and interacted. I would encourage you to do some more if you haven't already. Um, But we took the top three objections, and I have been uh, talking about them from the pulpit. So two weeks ago, we talked about how we can trust the Bible. The question is, how can we trust the reliability of the Bible? so old, it's been passed down, it's been changed through languages, and we talked at length about how reliable the Bible was. And if I can gauge you well, and I think I can, I convinced everyone that the Bible is true. So that was two weeks ago. Last week, um, the question was, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Christianity claims, as scripture claims, as Jesus claims in scripture, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. How can Christianity claim that Jesus is the only way to God? And so we talked extensively about that um, and, and attempted to answer that question. Tonight, um, we will answer a far more practical question. The last two were very conceptual, theological. Tonight is very practical. The third most common objection in Christianity is, why are there so many hypocrites in church? Now, I'm not that old. I'm only 30. And for the first 10 years, I was pretty useless. So say for the last 20 years, I have seen Christianity and hypocrisy become synonymous um, through a variety of different things. Um, Things like Major public figures like Ted Haggard and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and televangelists all around the world um, being hypocritical, saying one thing, preaching one thing, and showing that their life did not back up what they preached. Um, and, and so that has created um a, an assumption that people in church are hypocrites because leaders in churches are hypocrites. And and I think to an extent that's fair, in that the primary responsibility for the face of our faith are pastors. That That is a responsibility given to pastors that uh, many times as pastors go, so goes the church. In fact, John Calvin once said it were better for him, a pastor, to break his neck going into the pulpit if he does not take pains to be the first to follow God. In other words, it would be better that a pastor die than go into the pulpit and preach something that he's not pursuing in his life. And I, I think that's, I think that's really fair. So thankfully made it, I'm safe, no death yet. But maybe some of you aren't thinking of major pastors that have fallen. Maybe that is not why you associate hypocrisy with the church. Maybe you grew up in a home where your parents drug you to church every week. And, and they, they put on their church clothes and they did the church thing. And then they went home and argued with one another and yelled at one another. And your dad um, beat your mom. And eventually they divorced and split. And it was this horrible thing. And you're going, that cannot be Christianity. And you went, that's hypocrisy. Or Maybe it's someone you work with. Maybe it's Jim at the at the job that steals staples from the, staplers from the company every week and is lazy on the job. And you're thinking to yourself, A, what's he doing with all those staplers? And and B, how can he claim to be a Christian but do those things? It's hypocrisy. Or maybe it's your roommate, Nancy, and Nancy cheats on her homework, cheats at school, cheats on her boyfriend, but claims to be a Christian. And you go, how can that person be a Christian that does not line up with what Jesus teaches? And so you look at that and go, that's hypocrisy. Or maybe you grew up in church and you had a pastor who got up and preached every week about the grace of God and about obeying God and about the gospel and preached and preached and preached, but then one day up and left and took all the church's money and the secretary. (laughs) And you look at that situation and you go, that, that can't work. That doesn't, that's not right. That's hypocrisy. Okay. So I, I don't know why, what has brought you to this place. I, I don't know what experience you've had. Or, or maybe it's just been culturally conditioned. You've heard it enough times. You don't have any personal stories of experience of hypocrisy. You've just heard so many people say, yeah, Christians are hypocrites. You're like, yeah, Christians are hypocrites. Whether it's true or not, or whether, whether it's accurate or not, the reality is that um, hypocrisy has become synonymous with Christianity. And it, it is a sad, sad thing, but it is a reality that we must face. And, and I think even to the point now that non-Christians watch Christians specifically to find places where they slip up, to be able to find opportunities to go, ha, 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 hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Okay. So tonight, what I, what I want to do is actually want to preach two sermons. And you're thinking, oh man, usually one's enough. These two sermons are going to be a little shorter, and they are going to form as one a master sermon, okay? And so... Here's how this is going to go. My, my first sermon, uh, first, uh, the first half of this thing, I want to talk specifically to non-Christians. So I, I know that many of you are here tonight. Uh, you were invited by a friend. You're not a believer. Man, we welcome you. We're thankful you're here. Uh, we don't want anything from you, just so you know. Um, but we are thankful that you're here. Um, and so the first sermon is going to be to you and to you Christians. I want you to listen to what, what I'm saying. Okay. I just want you to listen in on this sermon that's to non-Christians. But then the second half is the sermon that's going to be specifically for Christians. But, but I would really, I would really ask that, that non-Christians in the room would, would hear what Jesus has to say about hypocrisy to Christians. Okay, and I'll just let you know a little secret non-Christians between you and me, the Christians aren't listening right now. It's gonna be way worse for the Christians. Okay, I'm just telling you that right now. Alright? So, let's do this. First to non-Christians. Um One thing that that I think happens um, quite often is that a non-Christian will find themselves in a Christian context, um, such as coming to church. And they might come to church at the behest of a friend who's been dogging on them and dogging on them. Hey, got to come to church, got to come to church. They finally come to church and they come to church and they see people around them and maybe they recognize somebody in the crowd. Maybe they go, I know that guy. I know that girl. I just saw them last night at this bar doing ungodly things. Or I just saw them at this party, and they were not being like Jesus. They didn't have the bracelet, and they weren't doing what the bracelet says. And, and so you recognize them, and you go, aha, hypocrisy, I knew it. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe, maybe you will notice somebody here, you will see somebody here, and then tomorrow or later tonight or, or the next day or the next week or the next month, you'll see them again in a compromising situation, in an ungodly situation, and you'll see them at a bar doing bad things up on the bar doing bad things (laughs) and and you'll go look see hypocrisy they were in church they should be christians but they're not living out that christianity well i want to stop you there for a second because i think you make an assumption that may not be fair on any given sunday at praxis now this is not true at all churches but at praxis we estimate that as many as 20 percent of the people in the room are not christians So when you look around you and you see people, maybe they're sitting in front of you or to the side of you, and you go, man, that Christian is next to me. And then you see that Christian next to you doing bad things. and You go, aha, they were hypocrites. I knew that church was full of hypocrites. Don't be so quick to assume that that person is a Christian. There's actually a pretty good chance that they're not. Because isn't it plausible that that other person is looking at you right now going, aha, I knew it. They were serving the person on the bar. (laughs) So let's not assume that everybody here is Christian and that you can just go, "Uh aha, they're there and they saw them there. That means they're hypocrites because someone might be doing the same thing about you. And you are here as a non-believer visiting us this evening, okay? So let's not make make, uh, too many assumptions. Second of all, I told a friend of mine this week that I was going to be preaching on this, kind of give him the rundown on, on what the whole series was about. And, and I said, yeah, the, the, the number three objection to Christianity was that there are so many hypocrites in church. And he kind of laughed, kind of scoffed. He's like, man, I don't think that's a particularly Christian problem. I said, really? What do you mean? He goes, well, Tim, I think hypocrisy is just a human problem. It's not so much of a Christian, a uniquely Christian problem as much as it is just a human problem. And I thought, you know what? You're on to something there. I think that might be true. Now, there are certainly plenty of hypocrites who claim to be Christian. I, I don't mean to diminish that. In fact, we'll, we'll get there. But my guess would be, an educated, experiential guess would be, that there are, in fact, uh, Muslim hypocrites and Mormon hypocrites and atheist hypocrites and agnostic hypocrites, and there are all kinds of hypocrites. In fact, the definition of a hypocrite, according to my iPhone, (laughs) is a person who pretends to have virtues, moral or religious beliefs, principles, etc., that he or she does not actually possess, especially a person whose actions belie their stated beliefs. So, In other words, the dictionary definition of a hypocrite is someone who says they believe something, says they support something, says this is my philosophy, my ideology, I live my life this way, but in actuality, they actually don't believe those things. They they think they do, or they wish they did, or they want you to think that they do, but in actuality, they do not. And their lives communicate that they do not. Okay, But, alas, there is a second definition of a hypocrite in the iPhone. A person, a hypocrite is a person who feigns or fakes some desirable or publicly approved attitude, especially one whose private life opinions or statements belie his or her public statements. In other words, there are atheists and agnostics and random people who say that they are open-minded, Tolerant. They believe in racial equality. They believe in peace. They believe, they believe in all kinds of different things. They are politically correct. When in fact they are not. But they know that our culture values those things and so they go, oh yeah, 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 I'm, I believe in tolerance. But in their heads they're going, yeah, but I hate that guy and I hate that guy and I hate that guy. I believe I'm very open-minded about social issues, but in reality, they go, "Yeah, but that guy shouldn't be doing that, and these people shouldn't be doing that." Okay, um, we see this all the time. We see this every single day. We see this um, on Friday nights in Scottsdale, in particular, when you see people who portray an image of wealth and success, <laughs> when six days a week they work at Starbucks and live with seven guys in a one-bedroom apartment. But on Friday nights, they're a real estate mogul who was driving. (laughs) Hypocrites. (laughs) Hypocrites. They portray a particular image that doesn't actually reflect who they are. Hypocrites. Okay. Um, atheists are often hypocrites when they make universally moral statements. Now, a hypocrite or an atheist who does not believe in God, does not believe in any supreme being, is a purely materialistic person, meaning not that they love possessions, but they believe in science, the natural world. Their worldview has been shaped by Darwinian evolution, by a philosophy of survival of the fittest. They believe that this world is the product of random chance evolution. And then those same people make silly statements like, war is immoral. World hunger should not ever be. They get up and say, rich people ought to, are morally responsible to care for poor people. Strong people should never oppress or take advantage of weak people. And they make universally moral statements. Now, this is not to say that an, that an atheist cannot be moral or, or make moral statements. They can, but they must be, if they want to be philosophically consistent, if they want to be logically consistent, an atheist must make moral statements that are subjective, that are temporal, not universal, that are uh, true for a particular culture, or that are true for themselves because they are abiding by the rules of cause and effect. In other words, an atheist can say, I don't believe in lying because I don't want to reap the repercussions of my dishonesty. Or they could say, I don't believe in stealing or I'm not going to steal because I don't want to get caught and go to jail. Or I'm not going to kill because I don't want to die. But to say that something is universally immoral... Presupposes a, a supernatural or an extra natural, something above and beyond humankind that would impose such universal morality. Now, um, uh, an atheist could argue that within a particular culture, within a social structure, that the people within that structure can um, arrive at a set of agreements that hold together their culture. So um, they could argue that it is immoral for murder to happen because if murder were moral and murder were common, that it would um, destroy the fabric of a culture. And this is true. But to make a universal statement and not a cultural or a universal statement and not a temporal or a universal statement and not a personal would presuppose a God that they don't believe exists or some other being. So um, we hear them say silly things like that strong country should not have taken over and oppressed that weak country. Those wealthy people should not oppress those poor people. Those strong people should not destroy those weak people. Now, I say it's silly not because I don't believe it, I absolutely do, but as an atheist, it is a fundamental rejection of your worldview, which says we started as um, single cell molecules that multiplied, 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 and through natural selection and through survival of the fittest, the most fit Members of a particular species who could survive best in their um, um, culture, in their context, were the ones that would push forward the evolutionary chain. And so we as humans are the product of the strongest defeating the weakest, the weakest being destroyed, and the strongest moving on. And that happened over the course of billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years to the point that we exist now as a product of survival of the fittest. Darwinian evolution. And so to reject that and to say, no, but these strong people should not oppress these weak people. These people with a large army should not defeat these people with a small army is to say survival of the fittest worked until now, but now the fittest should help the weakest. We should deny the very thing that shaped the humanity that we see now. In other words, we've evolved to the point where we don't need evolution. which presupposes that maybe we are the apex of evolution, that it doesn't go any further than us, or that somehow evolution just worked itself out of a job. Now, I believe that the strong should lay aside their strength to help the weak. I believe that the rich should sacrifice their wealth for the poor. I believe that the strong should not oppress the weak. I believe that these things should happen because I believe in a God who teaches mercy and grace and sacrifice. I have a biblical worldview which tells me that those things are good things, that God has created all of humanity equally, and that we should treat each other as such. And I can say that with full confidence because my worldview has been shaped by scripture that teaches that mercy and grace and sacrifice and peace and love and care are good things. I was not shaped by a worldview that told me the strong should eat the weak. But if I want to be consistent with my worldview that says survival of the fittest and Darwinian evolution has created this world and we are the product of that system, I should continue that system. So as important as it is to understand what hypocrisy is and perhaps understand that everyone is hypocritical at times and about certain things, I think it's also just as important to define what hypocrisy is not. Okay, So what hypocrisy is, according to the definition, was that when someone says they believe one thing, but don't actually believe it, and their actual disbelief manifests itself in a lifestyle that is contradictory to what they say they believe. In other words, they say one thing, they do another. But that say one thing, do another, is the product of a fundamental disbelief. Okay, but we'll get back to that. What hypocrisy isn't, but is often called hypocrisy, is when a person fundamentally does believe something, but in a given moment, in a particular decision or particular choice that they make, do not live out what they do truly believe. In other words, they make a mistake or they fail to fully live out what they really do believe. This singular moment in time when not a consistent pattern of life is not hypocrisy. It's humanity. Okay? We do this every day. Every single day. We, we sit in a restaurant, and we open up a menu, and we see things on that menu that are healthy, that will make us strong, that will make us fit, that will help us to live long, that will give us energy, that will care for our bodies, and then we see things on that menu that taste good. (laughs) And we sit before that menu every single time, and we go, I know, I believe that I ought to choose these things that are healthy, it'll make me feel better later, I will have more energy, I will sleep better, I will work better, I will have more fun, I will look better in the mirror but we always choose the burrito. (laughs) Besides the fact that the burrito is manna from heaven, we in that moment do not choose what we believe in our heart of hearts to be true because it is my conviction that every person at every moment of their lives chooses the thing that they want most right then. Whatever it is that they want most, that what they really value most, what they really love the best in that moment, that is what they will choose. But that is not hypocrisy. That is just humanity. That is the inability for humans to be consistent with their beliefs. That is weakness. That is brokenness. That is sin. That's humanity. But it's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when someone says one thing, doesn't actually believe it, so that they live a completely different way. Okay? Lastly, in my first sermon, not all Christians are Christians. Okay? Not everybody who gets up on a stage or gets in front of a television camera or talks to you in your day-to-day life who says that they are a Christian, who claims to teach Christian things, who claims to speak on behalf of Jesus or on behalf of Christianity, is actually a Christian. I, in our country, could get up here and say anything I want in the name of anybody I want. I could have started this evening's message by saying, welcome, on behalf of Tempe, I think we ought to bomb Mexico. I could have said that. Now, I didn't, thankfully. But would I, in that moment, be representing the people of Tempe accurately? <laughs> uh, don't answer that. <laughs> the reality is I would not. And they would probably chase me down and burn me at the stake if there are any stakes left. Okay? I would not be accurately representing the people of Tempe. If I got up and said, in the name of America, I think we should do something very un-American. I would not reflect on Americanism. I would only be reflecting on myself. Okay. Anybody can say they're anything. Anybody can say they're anything that doesn't make it so. Okay. The definition of a Christian is not someone who says they're a Christian. That's not a Christian. That's simply not a Christian. That's not a Christian by anybody's definition, but it's definitely not a Christian by the Bible's definition. In First John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. John just said if somebody's life reflects that they love the values of this world, that they love the ethic of this world, that they love the things of this world, if their lives reflect that they obey the patterns of this world, they are not of God. So they can say whatever they want. But if their lives reflect a love and a value of the things of this world John just said the love of God is not in them okay so if someone gets up and says on behalf of Christianity I say we do this horribly heinous thing that should no more reflect on Christianity than someone getting up and saying on behalf of America I propose we do this horrible heinous thing should even though it often does should Reflect on America. It should reflect on that person. Their dishonesty. And that they should not be trusted. Not all Christians are Christians. Christians should be judged based upon their lives. Not solely by their words. Okay? Which leads me to sermon number two. In which, in which I will say... There is no such thing, and listen to me on this, there is no such thing as a Christian hypocrite. There's no such thing. I'll prove to you. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus defines hypocrisy for us. Mark chapter 7, verse 6. It'll be up on the screens. Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says this. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Okay, Jesus is calling these Pharisees hypocrites. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus said, a hypocrite is someone who honors me with their mouth, says the right thing, they may even worship, though they do it in vain, they go to church, they say the right things, they call themselves Christians, they know the game, they've figured it out, but their hearts are in fact far from God, they are not pursuing God, they do not love God, And because these hypocrites' hearts are far from God, Jesus in the very next, or excuse me, in in Matthew chapter 24, says that they will find themselves in hell because their hearts are far from God. They don't actually believe in God at all. Which backs up our dictionary definition, which said hypocrisy is someone who says one thing that they don't Actually, believe. And because the way we live is the product of what we believe, there is a fundamental disconnect between what they say and what they do because the thing that should connect those two is their heart, which Jesus says is far from God. Okay, Matthew chapter 23, turn there. Jesus has strong words for hypocrites, which further, I think, proves my point that there are no Christian hypocrites. Matthew 23 starting in verse 13. And I'm going to kind of read first sentences of a bunch of different verses here. So we'll go through verse 29. they will be on the screens. Jesus says and, and I'm going I'm to repeat a word over and over and over. Okay, And I want you to listen for it. See if you can pick up on it. And I'm going to say it so many times that if, if you don't know what word I'm thinking of you're, you're dumb. Okay? So just <laughs> verse 13. But Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you, hypocrites, neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple which has made the gold sacred? Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Woe to you, verse 29, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Did you pick up on the word? Whoa. Nice. Woe to you. Now this word woe is a powerful, powerful word. It's only three letters, but it is a powerful word. This word woe that Jesus says here has in it the idea of impending doom, the impending judgment. He is saying woe to you. There is great woe in your future. Now, if one of you said, woe to me, I might care, I might not, depends on how big you are. (laughs) But if God says, woe to you, blind guides, woe to you, empty tombs, whitewashed tombs who look good on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness, woe to you, hypocrites, who clean the outside of the cup, leaving the inside filthy and dirty. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you because you claim to be my people and yet you live in ways that reject everything I care about. Woe to you, hypocrites, who say you represent me and yet your life in no way represents what I love. Woe to you, hypocrites. Who love the very things I hate. Woe to you. So here's what I see. I see Jesus saying that a hypocrite is someone who says the right things, might even do some of the right things, some of the religious things. But their heart is actually very far from God. They do not love God. Their hearts are not inclined towards Him. They are not pursuing Him. He is at a distance from them. Jesus describes Pharisees as people who have cleaned up the outside of their lives but are filthy and dirty and unrepentant on the inside. People who are dead on the inside but clean up the outside. Ultimately, people who he said will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who have shut out other people from the kingdom of heaven because the way they live does not match up with the things they say. And so people look at them and go, hypocrite. Why would I want to be a Christian? They're hypocrites. And in so doing, close the gate to the kingdom of heaven. hypocrite but what jesus has just described is not a christian what jesus has just described is not a believer is not a follower of jesus john hammers this home even more in first john chapter three verses four through ten he says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness You know that he appeared, Jesus, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John says, little children, let no one deceive you. And then John gives us the money line. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. He goes, I'm about to give you what the evidence is of someone who is a believer or not a believer. This is what you can be looking for. This is the evidence that you can see in other people's lives. But more importantly, for you who claim to be Christians here today, this is the evidence that you can look for in your own life. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, if your life is marked by continual habitual sin and rejection of God, you're not a Christian. I don't think John could say it any more clearly. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning, whose life is an ongoing reflection of the values of this world, whose life is an ongoing rejection of the values of God, whose life is continual sin, is not a follower of Jesus. Now, does this mean that followers of Jesus, truly repentant Christians, will never sin? No. But, two things happen. One is, over the course of their life with God, as they pursue God, as they their hearts draw nearer and nearer to Him, as their hearts are shaped by His grace, their sin will become less and less and less and less and less. As they are refined by God, sanctified by God, their lives will more and more and more reflect the values of God. Two, when we fall, When we stumble, we are quick to repent. We are quick to say, God, I failed. I did not live up to what you expect of me, what you have called me to, what you have freed me to do. I am humbling myself at your feet, knowing that I cannot save myself. God, please forgive me. Those two things happen to Christians. Now, What I have seen and and it it makes me so sad to see and I see it more so in younger um, immature Christians immature people than I do the more mature because this is just a process of sanctification but it is the very thing that Paul references in Romans 6. In, in Romans 4, 5, and 6, Paul is expounding upon how Christ's entrance into this world, his death on the cross, his resurrection from death, has freed us from the shackles of sin, has freed us from the law, and freed us unto grace, that we are now saved by grace. And he's talking about grace, 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 forgiveness, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. And he anticipates that the people reading this letter and hearing it read, and he anticipates that... Us here today, 2,000 years later, will hear grace, 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 and go, ah, I can do whatever I want. I'm under grace. I'm free to do whatever I want. And at the end of the day, I toss up a forgive me, and I'm good. (laughs) Love grace. Grace is great. No law. Don't be a moralist. Don't tell me what I can't do. I'm free. I'm under grace. Paul's response? By no means. By no means. He says, what you give your body to, you enslave yourself to. You want to give your body to sin? Fine. You are enslaving yourself to sin. When we do this, it reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. At the beginning of our summer series, we spent two weeks talking about the gospel. We did Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, and then Ephesians 2, 10. We showed how the gospel saves us from Jesus' work on the cross, saves us from sin, saves us from death, saves us from destruction, saves us from brokenness, from darkness, but doesn't stop there. It doesn't save us from sin so that we can go back into sin and simply be forgiven. It saves us from sin so that we can pursue righteousness. It saves us from death so that we can pursue life. It saves us from brokenness so we can pursue healing. Saves us from and to. And yet so many of us love that we're saved from the penalties of sin and go, great, now I can live in that sin just without the penalties. Foolish, foolish, what you give yourself to, you willingly enslave yourself to foolish and a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Five years ago, um, probably a little bit before that, when we were talking about starting praxis, um, we we're thinking about, you know, what do we want to name this thing? Right? Like it's the one time you get to name something until you have a kid and, and, uh, and it could be really creative. And we were talking about, what do we want to name this? We had some ideas, you know, church at the lamb who was slain was a top one, but we didn't go with that. And, um, We eventually decided on Praxis, and and, and probably more than anything else, I have been asked, what in the world does Praxis name? What does that mean? And so um, every time someone asks me that, I think that was probably a stupid name, but um, Praxis... um, that name was born out of my um, theology studies. When, when we would study a theology, we would first study the conceptual side, what the person had written, what the, what this would look like and, and what it meant and how it was worked out. And then, um, when we would study the conceptual side, we'd kind of talk about what that meant and what we liked and what we didn't like. And there was one in particular that I really loved when we were studying the conceptual side of it. It was called Liberation Theology. And it was um, uh, it was uh, um, put together by a man named Gustavo Gutierrez. And I just, I loved it. It was talking about caring for the poor and God's um, preferential option for the poor and the weak that God spent time with those people and loves those people and we ought to as well. It just sounded fantastic. And then we got to how it was worked out it's praxis. And it, was a, it resulted in guerrilla warfare, political coups, um, people being mowed down in the streets with machine guns, uh, political uprisings. And I thought, there's a disconnect there somewhere between the conceptual side of what they believed and the praxis, what they did. And unfortunately, that fundamental disconnect is not unique to liberation theology. It is unfortunately not unique at all. But is the common problem that we have. This is the foundation of hypocrisy. And so when we decided to name our church praxis, we thought it's it's a great name, it's a cool name, it's a catchy name, but more than anything else, I thought I want to be a part of a community that lives out what they say they believe. So I don't want to just call ourselves praxis. I want to be praxis. I want to be a people. I want to be a part of a people that lives out what they say they believe. We are praxis. That's who we are. That's who we aim to be. And so when we hear the gospel, when we know the gospel, the story of creation, made in perfection, designed just the way God wanted it to be, perfect harmony, perfect peace, man and woman loving each other, naked, singing, fruit, beautiful, right? we got lions, we got lambs, they're spooning, we've got, I mean, it's just, its it's beautiful, this perfection that God had in mind, and then a day come where it all went bad. We're sent into the world, and it just—it just got broken. It just got perverted. It just—it just went all bad. And and that's the life. That's the world we see around us. It's corrupt. That is the existence we know. But a day came when Christ came to Earth, lived as a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, lived the life that we should be living. Was killed on a cross. Died the death that we as sinners should die. Was raised on the third day. Ascended into heaven. Sits at the right hand of the Father today. And there will come a day, he has promised, where he will come back. And he will restore all things back to that original creation. That perfection that he designed this world to be. And he has left us in the middle. He has left us as his people in the middle. To reflect back upon the perfection that once was. And to give the world hope for what will be. And that's our calling. To live in the middle. To reflect both the past and the future. Not, as so many of us are, to reflect the present. So many of us reflect the present around us, the brokenness, the darkness, the corruption, the perversion around us. We reflect that and so give no hope. Why would anybody want to follow Jesus when Jesus' followers simply reflect the reality that they know? Offer no hope, nothing different, nothing better. Jesus has called us as his followers, as praxis to be people who give hope because we know what once was and we know what will be again. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for that hope that we have. I, I, don't know, I don't know what we would do living, living in this corrupt world without hope. Without a knowledge that things are not as they are supposed to be. Without clinging to the fact that what you have created, what we see around us is not your intention for creation. But that we have hope that it will one day be restored. Restored. Lord, we're so thankful for that. It gives us a reason to wake up in the morning. It gives us a reason to love those around us. It gives us reason to live the way we ought to live. Thank you for the hope. The hope that was brought the most terrible of means. Your death on the cross Perhaps the darkest day in all of human history is in fact a promise of the greatest day. Our Lord, I pray that we would remember that every moment of our lives, with every decision we make, with every word that we utter. We would remember that hope. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Every week we move into a time of response and and we, we do this every week we we've always done